Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode in our Topics in Drug Testing podcast series. My name is Frank Samaro. I'm the Director of Marketing for the Clinical Drug Monitoring Franchise here at Quest Diagnostics. I'm very excited about today's episode titled Windows of Detection. Today's podcast will feature Quest Diagnostics' very own Dr. Jeff Gooden and Dr. Jack Kane. Jeff and Jack, it's great to have you with us today. I'll turn it over to both of you for introductions and to get the discussion started. Thanks, Frank, and welcome back to another podcast on drug testing. This one has to do with windows of detection, a question we get very frequently, and it has to do with understanding how drugs are metabolized and eliminated from the body. I'm Dr. Jeff Gooden, pain management and addiction specialist, and accompanied today by Dr. Jack Kane. Jack, a quick introduction. How are you doing, Dr. Gooden? Doing great. Thanks so much. Jack, talk to us a little bit about what drug metabolism really means. Yeah. So, you know, some of the most common questions, in fact, we actually collected data of some of the most common questions uh, that we get through our Tox Consult hotline. And one of the most common questions is, you know, what is the window of detection of a particular substance or its metabolite? Well, you and I both know that it, it, that's actually a loaded question. If you know anything about pharmacology, you know that each drug has its own inherent properties that impact how fast it can pass through a patient's body. But also, you know, there are patient-specific factors and laboratory-specific factors that can impact how long we detect a drug. But for starters, let's just start by understanding what drug metabolism is, because that provides essentially the algorithm for understanding, you know, what metabolites are formed and how long it takes for these substances, the parent drug and the metabolites to pass through the body, which ultimately determines the window of detection. So drug metabolism is the chemical alteration of a drug by the body. You know, your body biotransforms, you know, this parent substance, this parent drug that came from outside your body, it biotransforms it into what we call a metabolite to make it more polar and or more readily excretable from the body. Um, and so I like to think of the liver as kind of like the detox mechanism. It is the primary site for drug metabolism. Drug metabolism does occur in other sites. And in some cases for drugs, you know, metabolism doesn't always occur. You know, in fact, a parent drug might just be excreted as itself um, in large concentrations uh, via the urine, such as like a common example being gabapentin, as you know, Dr. Gudin. Hey, Jack, I'm glad you bring up gabapentin because, you know, we were taught in medical school that most drug metabolism happens in the liver, but it turns out for a drug like gabapentin, it happens in the kidneys, which is why it's very important to monitor renal function in somebody who takes gabapentin. Now, I hear a lot about half-life having to do with how long a drug is detectable. Jack, can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so to understand, you know, what the window of detection is for a drug, you have to understand you know, what half-life is and what is the half-life of a drug. So the half-life of a drug is an estimate of the time it takes for the amount of drug in the body to be reduced by exactly one half. And that symbol is T half. And then the duration of time that it takes for a drug to pass through the body and be eliminated determines the window of detectability. So, you know, it, it's not like an absolutely direct correlation, like, oh, this half-life exactly correlates to the exact uh, time of elimination for a substance. There's still a lot of other variables. In fact, I mean, even if you look up the half-life of a drug, of a drug uh, you, you'll see that there's a time range even for the half-life of a drug. So, but generally speaking in pharmacology, the general rule we look for and we ask, you know, so how many half-lives does it take for a drug to be 99% 
eliminated from the body. And you have to understand that drugs, they're not really eliminated in a very, in a linear fashion. In fact, there's only a few examples of where drugs are just eliminated in a straight line. I usually think about it the other way is how long does it take a drug to reach steady state? And we know that's about five half-lives. Does the same thing go for uh, windows of detection as far as until the substance isn't detectable? Yeah, there's a difference between therapeutic effectiveness and window of detection or when a drug is completely eliminated. And sometimes people overlap those two concepts. It's like therapeutic efficacy and detectability are two different parameters. So drugs lose their effect around four to five half-lives, but that doesn't necessarily mean we can't detect them. So around seven half-lives, the drug is 99% eliminated from the body. But then we have to consider you know, well, what about the metabolite? Does the metabolite have a longer half-life than the parent drug? So that might extend the window of detection uh, for various substances as well. But the general rule is a shorter half-life translates to a more rapid elimination of of a drug and a shorter window of detection, whereas a drug with a longer half-life translates to a prolonged elimination of the drug from the body in a longer window of detection. And seven half-lives is achieved around one to three days for most opioids, for example. Yeah, Jack, it sounds like if a drug has a half-life on the order of hours, if you go out seven half-lives, that's just a couple of days. So, you know, people mm-hmm. always ask us, you know, how come you can't detect the drug for longer? I assume that's the reason because it gets metabolized from the body. Yeah, you think about uh, hallucinogens. I mean, many of them have half-lives of minutes. And so, Well, they'll have a window of detection of less than 24 hours. Yeah. And I assume there's lots of variables that affect windows of detection. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I mentioned there's patient specific variables, there's drug specific variables, and there's laboratory specific variables, like patient specific variables, meaning is the patient chugging water in vivo dilution of their urine specimen? Well, what's that going to do? It's going to decrease the the overall drug concentration. When you decrease the drug concentration, you decrease our ability to detect it confidently, you know, and that drug might fall below a cutoff. And so if it's falling below our cutoff, then that window of detection uh, has been shortened. And then liver and kidney function, drug-drug interactions, genetics. And then if you go to drug-specific variables, I know that you do a lot of work in this space, Dr. Gooden, for drug formulations, extended release or modified release might impact how long a drug sticks around. And then even fatty deposition of drugs can lead to longer windows of detection. So, so many variables. You know, Jack, you mentioned that fatty deposition. We've talked about that with marijuana for years. And even now, Fentanyl has fallen into the same bucket. Tell our listeners a little bit about what we've been uncovering or discovering about uh, fentanyl uh, windows of detection. Yeah. So like the drug specific variable, we've known that fentanyl theoretically inherently is highly lipophilic. So that allows for rapid transport between blood plasma and the central nervous system, but also it allows for its deposition into fatty cells and fatty tissue. And so forth, you know, that a, a study's actually shown that fentanyl has been detected up to 19 days after last use. But remember, I mentioned that even the metabolites might be detectable for longer periods of time. And this study showed that norfentanyl has been detected 26 days following last use in patients with a history of opioid use disorder. So fentanyl sticks around and it's, it's very disturbing, but it also adds to the complications of interpreting certain results. Yeah. So for our listeners, you know, if you have those patients that are daily users of drugs like marijuana or fentanyl, even when they stop using, we're still going to find evidence of the drug in their system. That's a very 
common question that we get as a call into our RX Tox line, our hotline for toxicology. Why is my patient still testing positive? It's been two weeks. Well, when you use a drug, like Dr. Kane said, that's very lipid soluble, it stores in the fat and it comes out slowly over time. And we continue to detect that for a longer period of time. Hey, Jack, briefly just touch on the concept of XR, XL, CR, ER, these, you know, extended release formulations of drugs. Let's use oxycodone, for example, the half-life of oxycodone, which refers to the amount of time it takes for half the drug to be effectively eliminated from your body, is around 3.2 hours. Well, the half-life for the timed release or the extended release version of oxycodone is around 4.5 hours. So a longer half-life which could lead to a longer window of detection if you're comparing oxycodone ER versus oxycodone immediate release. Um, and then the same thing with buprenorphine. When buprenorphine, when given via injection into the fatty layer of the skin, could lead to a urine window of detection of up to 12 months after last injection when compared to sublingual buprenorphine, which has a shorter window of detection. That's great, Jack. You know, you talked a little bit before about these interactions between drugs, interactions with food, interactions with other factors. Tell us a little bit about how that affects kind of drug metabolism and windows of detection. Yeah, a drug-drug or a drug-food interaction has the ability to modify the action or effect of another drug. It also has the ability to modify the window of detection of another drug because if you're inhibiting the breakdown of a substance that the patient consumed, you're probably going to delay its elimination when compared to you know a normal scenario. And that can actually happen, like for example, the patient is taking a medication that's broken down by like say cytochrome 3A4, which is responsible for the metabolism of more than 50% of medicines. Think about what happens if you inhibit that enzyme that breaks down substances. And one of the most common examples in pharmacy, you know, my pharmacy colleagues know this, the forbidden fruit is what we call it. Grapefruit, all sources of it, is a potent inhibitor of cytochrome 3A4 enzyme in the liver. And so like if a patient's consuming a drug that is broken down by cytochrome 3A4, you know, in our space, uh, some examples would be fentanyl, buprenorphine, diazepam, you know, those three substances are broken down by cytochrome 3A4 into their respective metabolites. Well, if this patient's consuming grapefruit juice in conjunction with those, you might actually see those like fentanyl accumulate in the body um, as opposed to being eliminated as expected. Yeah, Jack, this is just really amazing from a clinical standpoint, how clinicians need to understand at least some elementary facts about the cytochrome P450 system, because so many medicines inhibit it. Some medicines induce it, meaning kick it in and rev it, rev it up so the medicines don't last as long. They get metabolized even quicker. So a basic understanding is necessary. And I think you and I have, have done a podcast in the past talking a little bit about pharmacogenetics. And you know, let's say somebody is just genetically deficient in one metabolic pathway, let's say mm -hmm. T, uh, 2D6, and then they start a medicine that's also an inhibitor of drugs 3A4 you could really inhibit the, the full metabolism of lots of drugs, give patients higher plasma levels, more side effects. So it's critical to understand this whole drug-drug interaction thing, as well as a little bit about P450 metabolism. Yep. So remind us a couple of minutes about how this genetics of medications work. Yeah. Um, like for example, cytochrome 2D6, highly responsible for the metabolism of opioids. Well, you could have an allele like the star five allele, which is a non-functioning variant. And what would that make you? A poor metabolizer of codeine, you know, the codeine pathway to morphine or hydrocodone to hydromorphone 
or um, various other 2D6 pathways. Yeah, even oxycodone to oxymorphone. So I think we see that sometimes in our test results where we scratch our heads and say, you know, when we track historically the patient's oxycodone and its metabolites, the noroxycodone and oxymorphone levels, usually they line up. And then there'll be a month or two where they're totally off. So let's say noroxycodone levels will completely drop. And we, you know, we wonder, did they inhibit the breakdown or the cytochrome P453A4 some way with maybe another drug? So now they're not developing the same levels of the breakdown product, noroxycodone. So, you know, I I think it's incumbent upon us to, to learn a little bit about drug metabolism and just understand the nuances and how drug-drug interactions can really affect our patients. So tell us a little bit, Jack, about what happens when patients have end organ disease, like liver failure or kidney failure. That obviously has to affect metabolism and windows of detection. Yeah. You know, in hepatic failure, it's been found that opioid clearance is reduced and drug bioavailability is increased. So these changes can be secondary to reduced hepatic blood flow or decreased cytochrome P450 enzyme levels in these patients. So in advanced liver failure, it's been shown that oxycodone's maximum concentration increases 40%. And in immediate release um, formulations of oxycodone, half-life increases in a range of 4.6 to 24.4 hours. So at an average of around 14 hours, which is pretty alarming. Yeah, it's incredible. So, you know, not only are there drug-drug interactions and drug-food interactions, we need to understand the comorbid conditions that our patients suffer with. And if they have renal failure, use caution with medications. If they have hepatic failure, certainly probably need lower doses or less frequent dosing of many of the medications that we give because kidney and liver dysfunction can prolong the effects of our drugs, prolong the, or extend the breakdown of these products. Mm -hmm. Jack, how about dilution? You know, we hear about this all the time that you know, especially for those who are trying to beat a drug test, but how about those who vary their fluid intake? How does that affect the reading of, or the results that we get in the lab? Yeah. Like, you know, a patient specific factor here uh, that could impact a window of detection. It's like, if if the patient's consuming water, has an active lifestyle, that urine specimen is going to be more dilute than somebody who isn't consuming as much water. Um, And when you do that, you can lower drug concentrations within a urine specimen and possibly generate a negative drug test result. And so diluting a urine specimen, whether it be intentional, so maybe like in vitro, so pouring water into a cup or in or unintentional, like in vivo, just chugging water, both of those methods can lower drug concentrations and thereby lower the window of detection of various substances. Let's talk about what we do as a lab at Quest Diagnostics to ensure the sensitivity and the specificity of, of our results. Yeah. So, you know, you have to understand too, like laboratory methods have gotten pretty robust, you know, as the years have progressed in in toxicology and so have the uh, confirmatory methods um, in essence. So like the definitive testing technologies that we use, liquid chromatography, mass spectrometry, those have improved in what does that mean? Well, we've been able to increase sensitivity, use higher sensitivity methods to detect drugs. And what do I mean by that? We can detect drugs at concentrations lower than ever before. And so if you can detect drugs at lower concentrations, uh, that means you could probably detect drugs longer than we traditionally have been able to. So if a patient was exposed to a drug two days ago, older laboratory methods would have probably only been able to detect that drug for those two days. But 
since we've increased sensitivity, used more expensive mass spectrometers, but certainly more robust, we've been able to expand our window of detection for substances longer than traditionally known. That's great. Hey, Jack, before we close, let's talk a little bit about the sample matrix or the sample type. Are there different windows of detection, whether a clinician sends us a urine sample, a saliva or oral fluid sample, or let's say a blood or a serum sample? Yeah. So as you can see, like I've gone through already so many different variables that, you know, might impact window of detection. And that's why it's important for everyone to understand that windows of detection are simply an approximation. It's just an estimate. It's not like, oh, a drug is always going to be around for one to three days, like an opioid. There are exceptions. There are many variables that go into it, patient-specific, lab-specific, and drug-specific, but also specimen type or specimen types or specimen-specific variables. So like blood and serum have a window of detection of one to two days. Oral fluid have a window of detection around one to two days. And urine has a window of detection around one to three days. I would say one to four days for a lot of other substances, depending on you know those drug-specific variables and patient-specific variables. And then you have hair has a very long window of detection. It goes into months, but it actually can take a couple of weeks for a hair follicle to grow and demonstrate what might be consistent with consumption of a drug. So maybe not great for capturing recent use, but definitely viable specimen for capturing use of an illicit substance months down the road. And I'll remind our listeners that Jack and I have done podcasts previously on uh, using oral fluid as a matrix for, for drug detection, talking about windows of detection. And remember that oral fluid more closely matches blood or or plasma. So just keep it in mind. There's some nuances to oral fluid testing, like looking for the parent drug rather than the metabolite. So we'll refer you back to that podcast, which is readily available. Jack, can we get more than a couple of days on the window of detection for drugs? I'm asked that question all the time. Certainly possible. So some of these drug-specific variables certainly come into play. So you have alcohol metabolites, the ethyl sulfate and ethyl glucuronide are actually detectable up to 80 hours. Long-acting drugs can be detectable up to 14 days. For example, some benzodiazepines and uh, heavy users of cocaine have actually been shown to metabolize cocaine over longer periods of time than like your recreational, your standard recreational user. I'll also remind our listeners to be on the lookout for a podcast on novel psychoactive substances. You'll see that abbreviated NPS. These are kind of new and emerging drugs worldwide that are usually derivatives or analogs of drugs that we know about. They've been modified chemically to they could avoid detection. And because they're so new, we don't have great data on their windows of detection. So Jack, to wrap it up, if one of our listeners orders a drug test from Quest and it comes back positive, what does that mean? A positive drug test simply means, I just say exposure. You have to take everything into context. Can I opine, like, did this patient recently use? Can I unequivocally say that this patient reused just by looking at a urine drug test result? No, you you really have to take a lot of background consideration, patient backstory into consideration to make judgment on some of these calls. And then you just have to remember that just because a substance fell within a window of detection or even fell without positive without a window of detection, that you have to understand outside of the window of detection, you have to understand that windows of detections for drugs in urine drug testing and oral fluid drug testing and blood drug testing and hair drug testing, they're just approximations. There's so many variables that can extend the duration of detection 
or shorten the duration of detection of substances. And you just have to interpret these results by keeping the patient backstory into and the entire clinical picture of the patient into consideration. Yeah, look, if there's one thing we've repeated over and over on these educational podcasts is that we don't make any unilateral decisions based on a drug test. It has to match the patient's clinical picture. If they've run out of medications, but they were a cancer patient with a flare or sickle cell crisis with a flare, or they had to work extra hours, and then their test comes back negative, we take all of those into account. Oftentimes, we won't even send a drug test in in those circumstances. So this is a tool to help us. As famous Dr. McClure, one of our old teammates said, this is not a gotcha tool. We're not using this to catch the misbehaviors and say, hey, we caught you. We're using this as a clinical tool to help us with safe prescribing and monitoring of our patients. Let us remind you that Quest Diagnostics has a complete drug monitoring reference guide. This is a comprehensive brochure with all of our tests in there, including the test codes. We'll remind you that we have an 800 number call-in line if you have any questions regarding test ordering or test interpretation. There are uh, no shortage of Quest Field Force out there that can help you with your drug testing needs. We have leave-behind brochures. We have plenty of internet resources. If you log into questdrugmonitoring.com, you could find tools and educational resources, including the links to these podcasts that we review here now. So Jack, you want to sum it up for us today regarding windows of detection and drug monitoring? Put it simply, windows of detection are simply approximation. So keep that in mind when interpreting drug test results. It is possible for a drug that is traditionally known to fall into a one to three window of detection, it is possible in some scenarios to see those drugs in day four and even in day five. So again, just take all the variables, drug-specific, lab-specific, specimen-specific, patient-specific, keep those in consideration and also think about the patient's entire clinical picture. That was great. Dr. Jack Kane, thanks for another successful Quest drug monitoring podcast. As a reminder to our audience, you can visit questdrugmonitoring.com for those resources. I'm Dr. Jeff Gooden. Thank you for joining. Well, that does it for today's discussion on windows of detection. I'd like to thank our experts, Dr. Gooden and Dr. Kane, for being with us today and sharing their information and expertise. Please be sure to catch all of our podcasts at questdrugtesting.com. Thank you and have a great day. At Quest, we are committed to providing you results and insights to support your clinical decisions.